G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So good to be with you this morning. My name is Andy Judd. I teach Old Testament at Ridley College. I'm married to Steph, as Guy mentioned. And it's, uh, I'm really grateful to Guy for the invitation to open uh, this amazing book of the Bible, Esther. Also, um, come to think of it, grateful for the production team for making the backdrop into a shirt for me. Um, I just noticed um, if... This is good, right? I like this because if I say something that offends you all, I can just sort of take a step backwards and disappear, camouflage. This is good. Um, now, uh, speaking of things that may offend you, um, I'm a really big fan of The Bachelor. Steph and I love to watch The Bachelor. Yeah, we've got some booze down here already. Uh, don't judge us, please. Uh, it's the show that we like watching together. I think that's why Guy asked me to preach on this passage, because the topic, the title of this reading from the book of Esther is The Bachelor King, a, per- a Persian king, a powerful king looking for love, rich, powerful, looking for love, assembles a group of women to find his next uh, wife. Now, I love some good trashy reality TV um, shows. We have watched probably all 11 (laughs) seasons of The Bachelor, plus a good number of The Seven Bachelorettes. Uh, Some of you will know nothing about this. Others of you will remember with us, as I was reminiscing about this time badly spent, um, some of the key moments, the memorable times in the the story of The Bachelor. Uh, When the honey badger, Nick Cummings, in the final episode, dumped both finalists at once... Or who could uh, forget the moment when Georgia Love broke uh, Matty J's heart live on national TV, uh, doubling him over in emotional pain as he told him he didn't, she didn't want to be with him. All the controversies. The controversies. Uh, like when um, Blake picked Sam Frost and then dumped her and swapped, him, uh, swapped her for the person who came third afterwards. Or during Sophie Monk's incredible season as The Bachelorette. When the, uh, the crime drama unfolded uh, over who weed in Jared's pot plant. This is intellectual viewing at its best. Now, why do I raise this apart from um, some much-needed reflection on our life choices as a couple and how we spend our time? Uh, I raise this because the, the sometimes the story of Esther, chapter 2, as Esther appears in the story and we have this powerful king looking for a wife, it can remind us a little bit like an episode of The Bachelor, powerful king searching for a wife, Actually, in Chloe, our daughter's um, uh, children's Bible, this chapter is, is described as a beauty pageant, which is a lovely, though inaccurate, way of describing what's going on here. It's not an episode of The Bachelor. It's much worse. And it's not a beauty pageant at all. For starters, 
An important detail is Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as he was also known, is not a bachelor. He has a wife. In fact, he has harems full of women. What he wants is to replace his wife Vashti with someone who will be more compliant. As we heard the story last week, guys, so wonderfully explained how Vashti stood up to Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, ruler of the Persian Empire, who commanded most of the world's territory through his army. And she said no when King Xerxes, when Ahasuerus wanted to parade her in front of his drunk mates like a, a, a member of his harem might be. Vashti said, no, I'm not a member of your harem. I'm your wife. And for that moment of defiance, Big Mag Xerxes had to, uh, in his mind, uh, exile his wife because he couldn't have his authority challenged by his wife. Oh, he's a pathetic man. That's the only way of describing him. In fact, uh, historians tell us that there's probably been about four years from when Vashti disappeared off the scene to when, Z- uh, when Esther arrives. What's happened in those four years? What's made him suddenly so keen to get a new queen who will do what he says? Well, he's had a defeat, a significant defeat on the battlefield. This is around about the time when Xerxes, history tells us, marched into battle against the Greeks and got completely caned by them. And so he comes back, his pride in tatters. And what do powerful men do when their pride is threatened? They reassert themselves in pathetic ways. And that's, I think, what's going on in this passage. He's looking to make himself feel better and look better by expanding his harem and finding a new queen. So he's not a bachelor looking for love. He's not looking for love. He's certainly not looking for a queen who will be his equal or a queen who will be a a partner with him. He's looking for a queen who will be just another member of his harem. And this, by the way, uh, is totally in line with a character that we hear from history about Xerxes, outside the Bible, I mean. So Xerxes, real figure, uh, is recorded um, in uh, the writing of um, Herodotus. Now, I've been reading Herodotus as a bedtime reading, kind of just to let my mind calm down from the intellectual stimulation of The Bachelor. It's important to go to sleep well. Uh, and and uh, Herodotus actually tells a lot of these little stories about Xerxes. doesn't mention the story about Esther, but he does mention other stories which make it very probable that the, Bible's, the Bible writer is accurately dep- uh, depicting his character. For instance, we know that Xerxes fell in love, no, fell in lust with his brother's wife at one point, and so arranged for, to try to get her close to him, arranged for his own son to marry her, uh, so his own daughter to marry her son, No, other way around. His son to marry her daughter. This is very confusing. To try to bring his brother's wife into the palace. Right? To try to sleep, try to get close to his brother's wife. He kind of arranges this whole marriage for that sole purpose. But then, having married his son off to uh, the daughter of the woman he wanted, he decides actually that's not the woman he wants. He wants the daughter. So Xerxes works through women in a way that reflects his character. He is not a nice guy. He is presented accurately as a pathetic man, but a very powerful man, which is a dangerous combination. So the story we read here is very in keeping with his character. It's not about a king looking for love. It's about a man with unchallengeable power getting what he wants and uh, using women in the process. Because the other reason why this is uh, inaccurately described as uh, a beauty pageant, it's not a beauty pageant, it's not a bachelor thing, is because the plan that the young men in the palace think up is a terrible plan. It's an awful plan. 
to find a new wife. It's a terrifying abuse of power. And I must warn you, while the kids in City Kids are getting a much more PG version of this story, the events we'll see today are dark. There are dark themes, uh, including of uh, exploitation and even sex trafficking of women. Let's have a look at the text today. Chapter 2, verse 2. The king's young men who attended him said, this is their bright idea, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And so he did so. In other words, they're going to find a new queen, but it's not going to be a queen. It's not going to be a marriage uh, to some international partner, which is normally how these things work. Normally, uh, royal marriages were a diplomatic event. Right? Royal ma- marriages were how you formed an alliance between two powerful, equal parties. All right, so if Australia and the United States of America want to form an alliance for military protection, say, Anthony Albanese sends his daughter... And she marries Joe Biden's son. And that's how you form the alliance. That's how we get the nuclear submarines. Okay? It's, it's diplomacy by marriage. And that's normally how a king and a queen get together. All right? But this plan is actually, he's not looking for a wife. He's not looking for a queen. He actually just wants an extension of his harem. Someone who will do what he says. Someone who will never stand up to him. Enter Esther into this situation. Um, Now, Esther's backstory, we're reminded about a few times, is interesting. She is an exile from Judea, living in Persia. Uh, Some of the backstory, as Steph mentioned in our very first week when she told the sort of backstory of this, is that God's people broke the covenant with God, and the deal was you obey, you stay in the land. They disobeyed, they didn't get to stay in the land. So they're exiled from the land, and a lot of them end up in Persia. Now, exile was a very deliberate technique used by powerful empires to destroy a people. Here's the thing. You attack a country, you can defeat them quite easily if you have an army like the Babylonian or the Assyrian army. But what's very difficult to do, or more, hard, more difficult to do, is to keep control of that country. Because you go away and put out the next fire somewhere else, you go attack the next country... And there's always going to be some freedom fighters, some people who kind of remember their identity. No, we will not submit to the Assyrians. We will not bow the knee before the Babylonians. And eventually they rise up again and you're on the other side of the world. What are you going to do about it? So the Assyrians and then the Babylonians after them came up with this genius strategy to stop that happening. And what they did was they pick all the people who might be leaders from the country that they defeated and they took them and they randomly planted them all over their empire with the specific goal that they would forget who they were and they would never, ever even think to rise up against them. It was a brutally effective way of destroying a people and mushing them, grinding them up in the empire's machinery. And that had happened to Mordecai and Esther. Here were Jewish people, Judean people, living in the Persian Empire, with the whole exile project trying to stop them from remembering who they are. So she's in exile. She's a long way from home. And she's an orphan. 
Her parents have died, so her cousin Mordecai has taken her on as his daughter. So really, um, Esther wonderfully represents not just her own story, but her, a typical story. She really represents the Judean people, God's people. A people who are without mother and father in the world, without a home, without protection. They are an orphaned people dealing with the aftermath of the exile, living secretly in a foreign land. You can tell because their names are not Hebrew names. You can tell just how effective the empire is being at trying to wipe out their identity. Mordecai is a version of the name Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods. We're told a couple of times that uh, Esther is an exile. And Esther's name is actually, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, but she's not called that. She's called Esther in the story, which is a version of Ishtar, one of the pagan gods of love and war. And one rule that Mordecai gave Esther growing up is this. Never tell anyone who you are. Never tell anyone that you are a Judean. Never tell anyone that we worship the one true God, Yahweh. Just blend in. Just keep your head down. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't let anyone know who you are. Because Mordecai feared, quite reasonably actually, as the story goes on, he feared the anti-Judean sentiment in Persia. He feared that this would make things dangerous for his adopted daughter. Now, this is really an interesting piece of colour in the character of Esther and Mordecai. We're told Esther was obedient to Mordecai in this. It does raise questions about, well, did they do the right thing by keeping their identity secret? Probably this meant that they would not have been keeping kosher, the food laws which marked out the Jewish people. What do we make of this? Is it the right thing to have done to be, kind of keep things Quiet? Have they compromised their identity? Have they betrayed Jesus? I think it's worth um, wrestling with this. I love how complicated the characters are, and I love, actually, how relatable it is. Because it says, I don't know, you read stories about like Daniel in the lion's den, who just seems like born brave. You can kill me, but I will never bow the knee to you. And I don't, I don't really relate to that personality profile. Right? When the lions are coming... It's hard sometimes to see yourself in that story, but I love the story of Esther because it is so easy to feel empathy for her in this, isn't it? And it causes us to reflect on what will we do when the time comes? Right, tomorrow morning when someone asks, what did you do yesterday? Oh, I got out and about, went to Melbourne, uh, went to Melbourne Central. Hoyts. <laughs> When the time comes for you to say, yeah, you're not part of that weird Christian thing, are you? When someone says something that you, you, you think is just untrue and ungodly, and they want you to go along with it, what will, we, what will you do? I think it wonderfully, it's wonderfully relatable, these complex 3D characters. And it causes us to ask the question, what will we do when our time comes? Something maybe we can talk about in our gospel communities this week. In Esther's case, though, her secrecy about her ethnicity and her religion is a really important part of what sets up the, the story in a really great way. Esther is just one of the most wonderfully written stories in human history. It is so good because it just drops these things and these tensions and these themes of building as we go through the story. For instance, this theme of hiddenness, Esther's hidden Judean heritage introduces us to a, a broader theme of hiddenness, the fact that God is hidden in this story. 
As Guy mentioned, we, we, we don't hear anything about God in the story. And yet he's there. And it also raises this tension, right? A tension that will stay with us until the climax of the story. What will happen, Mordecai and Esther, what will they do when the heat is turned up on persecution and they have to decide, will you take a stand? Will Esther reveal who she is? Will she risk the precarious safety that she has found? Will she risk her comfort, her security, when the time comes and when God asks her to do something? Well, you have to come back in a future episode to see exactly what happens. One thing she can't um, hide, though, at this point, is her beauty. Esther is uh, beautiful, which actually is a mixed blessing for her. Because on the one hand, it attracts attention. And as we'll see, ends up, in a way, ruining her life. But at the same time, it is also something that God uses powerfully and strategically, spoiler alert, to save her people from genocide. Because at this point in her life, verse 8, the king's edict comes out and comes to her. Have a look uh, carefully at verse 8. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. Now, I don't know when you read the book of Esther, what you imagine. Do you imagine sort of all the women kind of lining up, eager for this opportunity to, to vie, like an audition for some reality TV show, trying to maybe escape poverty or escape uh, their situation by being selected and promoted to royalty? Maybe that's the image you get. This might have been the case for some of them, but to be honest, I get rather a different uh, image from what the narrator tells us. Look carefully at the uh, words used in verse 8. There is an edict, not an invitation. The young women are gathered, but we're told Esther particularly is taken. Right? That word is used often actually of things and people taken in war. Captured might be a word to think of. So this word taken is used here and later in verse 16. When you're captured, it it normally in the Bible means that you don't have a say in it. You're not asked, would you like to come and audition? You can imagine one day your teenage daughter or you or your sister heads out to gather water and never comes back. What happened to her? She was taken. So it's not a competition. I don't think Esther's necessarily had a choice in it. It's certainly not a consensual arrangement. In fact, um, some academics actually describe this. So Yoram has only described this as, quote, the perfected institutionalization of rape in which the king's will is the only will. I think that's, uh, that's probably very close to what's going on here, at least for many of the girls. Now, we're reading between the lines here a bit, I want to acknowledge. So... This is kind of all background information. The focus on the story is not really what uh, happens to Esther, but what this extraordinary situation brings about, what Esther does and what God achieves through her situation, through uh, her eventual selflessness and bravery. She's taken from her home, from all that she's known to this point. 
I like how um, Marion Taylor, who's a great Bible scholar, puts this. Uh, she's orphaned a second time by this edict, taken away from Mordecai, her adopted father, and brought into uh, the house of the keeper of the women, the head eunuch, Hegai. Now, uh, eunuchs are, are a type of official in the ancient world. They were uh, usually castrated as young boys um, against their will, obviously, but for the purpose that they could be trusted to take charge of the king's harem. Right? Because they're castrated, they're not a sexual threat to the king. And the uh, chief eunuch will uh, kind of make sure that he's the keeper of the women, he's described. He'll make sure that the women keep to the law of women, which is this Persian thing, apparently, that they have to go through this 12-month beauty process before they go in. We're thinking kind of luxurious spa treatments, massages with oils. Uh, the Botox is probably in there as well. Um, historians tell us they probably sat in front of these big burners, which would burn smoke that was scented and kind of infuse their bodies for this. Kind of an ancient perfume uh, kind of thing. Now, it's important to note that this is not meant to be luxurious for them, right? Like a 12-month massage might <laughs> sound good, but it's not for them, is it? It's for the king, right? Why do you need harems full of women in the first place? Well, it's an ancient practice of kings using women as human props to project their power. And the system that the young men devised to find the next queen is even more confronting. Because each night, one of the virgins is taken, again, taken from the bachelorette house. They've trained for 12 months for this sole mission of having sex with the king. And after sleeping with him, they're then taken to another harem, a harem for the women who are no longer virgins. And they probably, most of them, never hear from the king again, unless he happens to remember and calls for them by name. Uh, people have calculated if there is a four-year gap between Vashti leaving and Esther being king, that's uh, almost 1,500 girls that the king has gone through in this quest. Now, this part of the story as well prompts, I think, some really difficult, complex reactions, and I hope good discussions this week in our gospel communities. Some people have criticized, actually, Esther for taking part in this system. How can a good Jewish woman with good morals keep her identity secret for so long, then take part in a lavish beauty regime? then go sleep with a pagan king on a one-night stand. Or on the other side, maybe, um, other people criticize Esther as a scab, right? Breaking the sisterhood picket line. Right? Vashti has stood up to the patriarchy, so so should have Esther. If Vashti said no, then why didn't Esther? Now, this will be great discussions this week. Um, I'm inclined to be more sympathetic to Esther here because... Uh, the narrator doesn't really give us much to go on, but when Esther is mentioned, she's never an active participant in the story at this point. The narrator does seem to be, <coughs> pardon me, at pains to make clear that these are all things happening to her. Right? Esther was taken, we're told, back in verse 8. And then again in verse 16, the other girls go into the king. But the narrator is very careful to say that Esther was taken into the king. Verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So a, a number of scholars, and I think they're onto something here, suggest that in modern terms, you really should think about Esther a little bit like a, a, a victim of sex trafficking. Sex trafficked to Susa, if you like. Someone who had little choice or agency, but simply did what she did to survive. Now, ultimately, we're not given that much to go on, and we're not really told even what Esther thought about this whole thing. Nor, by the way, is there any judgment from the narrator 
about her uh, involvement or, or for breaking kosher or anything like that. And that's because it's not really the point of the story. In chapter two, it's not really the point of the story. And I really should stress, regardless of where you land on your view of Esther at this point, Esther doesn't need to be perfect. Esther doesn't need to have a perfect track record for God to be with her. Maybe she did break kosher. Maybe she was too afraid to be honest about who she was. Maybe she's not perfect, but God is still with her and still uses her for amazing things. God doesn't need perfect people to take part in his plans. You know what? That's a relief. I don't know about you, but it's a relief to me that God doesn't need perfect people for them to take part in his plans. That's good news for you and for me. So what happens to Esther, I think, at this point, is not really the point of the story. It's just what happened. The point of the story is that regardless of what she wants, she finds herself in this position. And in that position, she, she does what she can to use the hand that she's been dealt to advantage. She's not actually, uh, the, the rage doesn't say that she does much. She's not very active, as I mentioned in this um, section of, the, of, of Esther. But what she does do is gain favor in the eyes of people. So verse 9, she does good in the eyes of the keeper of women, eunuch, uh, the eunuch Hegai, and so wins his favor, getting better food and a better position in the harem. Verse 15, she follows Hegai's advice, and we're told that continues winning favor. And then verse 17, she wins grace and favor in the sight of the king. Now, I think... Uh, as she's gaining favor these times in, the, in, the, in wherever she goes, I think we're meant to be reminded of one of her ancestors, Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Right, who's uh, sold into slavery by his brothers back in the old days when, when God kind of walked with his people in that optimistic time in the story of the Old Testament before the exile, when God was really present, it seemed, not hidden. Well, Joseph is taken into Egypt and we're told uh, at least twice, maybe three times, that God is with Joseph. And as a result, he finds favor in the eyes of everyone. Right? Potiphar, the, the keeper of the jail, and eventually Pharaoh. And I think we're meant to see here a hint when she finds favor in the eyes of everyone she meets, that God's blessing is on her, that God has not abandoned his people after the exile and has not abandoned her. It's a clue that God is with Esther just as he was before the exile with Joseph. As a result, the king falls for her charm and she is crowned queen in place of Vashti. Um, a holiday is proclaimed or in some Bibles translated as a, a tax relief either way. Uh, we have no idea what uh, Esther thought about this, by the way, but this is her life now. This is just setting up the story. And the question we're left to ponder is, what is God going to do with this situation? So hold these thoughts. I don't want to give away the ending, but we start to see in this chapter the brilliance of the narrator. Dropping these things in early in the setup that will come back later in the story. Mordecai, for instance, was a reasonably uh, influential person. Mordecai um, seems to have been uh, maybe a, a, an official or a bureaucrat or something. Maybe he worked in a government department. And so in God's providence, he spends a lot of his time at the city gate. The city gate in Susa was not just a gate. It was like 1,200 square meters. It was like a, a central business district. Uh, it's where they had some soldiers posted, but it was also uh, where you would go to kind of do business. 
And this allows Mordecai to stay close to his adopted daughter when she is taken into the harem. He can kind of look over the window and see that she's all right. Verse 11, we're told every day, he takes his adoptive father duties very seriously. Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. At the same time, while this is going on, Mordecai overhears something which will become very important in how the story pans out. There's a secret conspiracy. Right? Two officials, Bigthan and Teresh, who are guards of the king, they fall out with the king in some way, they're angry with him, and so they meet together in secret at the city gate to conspire to assassinate the king. And this happened all the time. In fact, this is actually how Xerxes died. Ultimately, there was a conspiracy against him. But not this time, because somehow Mordecai, with his ear close to the ground, hears all about the plot. So what does he do? Do you think, well, serves him right, the terrible king? No. What he decides to do is to pass on a message through Esther to the king, which is a very clever move, because the plot is investigated, and the two conspirators are, well, they have a very bad day. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be true, to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, we know a few things from history about Xerxes. One, uh, his questionable attitudes towards women. The other thing we know about Xerxes is he loved a notebook. Right? One thing he was famous for is anytime anyone did something good, he would have someone there. Write that down. Write down that guy's name. Okay? So like the star chart in a primary school classroom, right? Xerxes loved to write people's names down for good behavior. Um, again, Herodotus tells us this, whenever Xerxes saw one of his own men achieve some feat in battle, he inquired, who did it? And his scribes wrote down the captain's name with his father and city of residence. He loved documenting good things in his social media feed. Anyway, weirdly in this case, after Mordecai and Esther save the king's life, and he writes down Mordecai's name in the book, what we're expecting to happen is that they're rewarded. We know from history that if you save the king's life, King Xerxes would give you something. Sometimes like a whole province. And yet, weirdly, in Mordecai's case, though he saved Xerxes' life, he doesn't get anything. Hold that thought. Because these facts, these little hanging strings, these threads not yet tied up, are going to become very, very important later. So the stage in the story has been set. In chapter 1, we met a vain and powerful king who banishes his queen. Chapter 2, we see a young and beautiful Judean girl with a secret identity taken from her home into the center of power. And at the same time, her adopted father saves the king's life, but is never rewarded. That's where we're at at the end of chapter 2. The tension is mounting and the scene is set for the next chapter when some really terrible things begin to happen. For now, though, um, the question raised by this chapter is, I think, what does it mean to be faithful in this world, in a world which is not the way it's meant to be, in a world in which powerful people get away with whatever they want to do, when they play with the lives of orphans, when everything seems out of control? Where is God on this side of the exile? He seems totally absent from the story or hidden. But actually, we'll see through the story of Esther that he is not missing in action. God is still with her. God is still with his people. Now, I should say, none of us probably have found ourselves taken from our families by the king of Persia. 
But Esther's story is here in the Bible for us as well. Not just to see God's faithfulness to Esther, but it has been treasured also through the ages because it speaks so powerfully into countless situations. I wonder, sitting here this morning, listening online, do you feel that where you are now in your life, God is missing? Have you ever felt that God is just not there for you? Maybe it was uh, circumstances beyond your control which brought you into a situation where God seemed far away. Maybe it was partly some of your choices that seemed to have turned out not the way that you thought God intended your life to go. And either way, Esther shows us, demonstrates for us that wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever has happened, you are never alone. You are never alone. No matter how hidden God feels, he is always always there. In fact, when God seems hidden, that's sometimes when God is most active. God does some of his best work in the darkness. Now, that's surprising in some ways because in the exile period, God's people had no guarantee, no promise that God would be with them. They had broken their side of the deal. But we as Christians... If you trust in Jesus, you have an assurance that God is with you, a promise. When Jesus arrived, the name he was given is Emmanuel, God with us. And when Jesus departed this earth, giving the church the mission, the great commission, what did he say? Surely I am with you till the end of the age. Esther didn't know that God was with her, that God would be with her. But we have a promise. Jesus has sent his spirit who dwells in us, the very presence of God dwelling in you, in us as a church, turning hearts towards him, reminding us of Jesus and what he taught, binding us together and empowering us to serve. So if you are in Christ, if you trust in the name of Jesus, then no matter where you find yourself, know this, that you are never alone. God does some of his best work in the darkness. Maybe, though, you feel like the last kind of person that God would choose to use powerfully. Maybe you're like, yeah, sure, God's with me, but God doesn't want me serving him. If so, I think uh, Esther's really a, a great story for you too, for me too. Because the other thing I love about Esther is just how unlikely a hero she is. Right here we have a twice orphaned young girl, forcibly displaced migrant with no power. And she's not fearless either. She's not like Daniel in the lion's den. She and Mordecai try to survive by keeping their identity secret. That's their instinct. But what she does do in the situation she finds herself we'll see in coming weeks, will be instrumental in God's purposes. With God, any situation can be an opportunity to glorify him by being faithful and by being part of his plans. So maybe you feel like you're in a situation that's far from ideal. Maybe your family situation, 
makes you feel stuck. Maybe, maybe you feel like your life circumstances have just panned out in, in a way that gets in the way of you serving God, or, or maybe mental ill health is something you're wrestling with, or you just seem like your burdens are always getting in your way. Maybe you don't feel worthy to serve God because you don't know enough stuff. You don't know the Bible well enough, or you don't have the right lineage. You weren't brought to Sunday school or city kids when you were a kid. You became a Christian so late in life, or whoever you are, know this. Take heart, because God is not sitting around waiting for perfect people to come and follow and serve him. Do you know what all these people have in common? Uh, Moses was a murderer who hated public speaking. How'd that go? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Matthew was a traitor who sold out God's people. Mary was possessed by like seven demons. Paul tried to wipe out the church. Esther was afraid. Mordecai was afraid. Even to tell people that she followed God. You know what they all have in common? God used them mightily. A friend of mine used to sum it up like this. It's a great life motto. Whatever situation you're in, whatever you've got, just do your best with what you've got for God. Do your best with what you've got for God. In Christ, you have been called to a new identity, not based on your ethnicity or your lineage or your past performance, but based on what Jesus has done for you. And we get the privilege of being called to serve him. Isn't that great? Serve him whatever situation we find ourselves. And like Esther, you never know when he's going to call ordinary people like you and me to stand up for him. So the band gets up, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Esther and the great drama that unfolds in these pages. Thank you for the faithfulness that you show to your people in this time, though they had no assurance that side of the exile, that you were still with them, that you were. And thank you that you used Esther so mightily. And I pray that we would be encouraged by this, to know that you are always with us. And thank you that you don't need perfect people with perfect backstories to serve you in your kingdom. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.